Welcome back to Friends and Neighbors. I'm Benjamin Wagner, and this week, Grammy-winning songwriter, producer, and performer, Dennis Scott. Fred Rogers famously said, the child is in me still, and sometimes not so still. The same can surely be said for this week's guest, Grammy-winning songwriter, producer, and performer, Dennis Scott. Dennis began his entertainment career as a seven-year-old Broadway actor before touring with the ensemble folk group, the New Christie Minstrels. His novelty tune, Captain Kirk's Disco Trek, led to his first serious foray into children's music and his first Grammy for Sesame Country. Dennis has served as music director for kid shows like Clifford the Big Red Dog, The Magic School Bus, and Sesame Street Live. And his dual collection of classics, culled from the Fred Rogers songbook, Thank You For Being You, and the Grammy-winning Songs From The Neighborhood, feature talent as diverse as Amy Grant, Donna Summer, Roberta Flack, Kelly Pickler, and Vanessa Williams. Now based in Nashville, Dennis is also leading the charge to get Fred Rogers inducted into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. This is a grown man, a dad, whose inner child is, as you'll hear, very much in him still, and sometimes not so still. This week, Dennis takes us on a restless, rollicking ride from Queens to the Catskills, Broadway to Nashville. And he begins not in front of the family television set, but on top of it. New York and I told my parents I want to be on TV and they picked me up physically put me on top of the TV I said no <laughs> I want to be inside the TV so they started giving me some lessons and said let's honor what he's trying to do and one year we went up to the Catskill Mountains sure to the Concord Hotel and there my parents were checking in and I wandered off to go exploring and I came across the nightclub there and there was a woman, these are the days there weren't computers. She was actually yeah. physically taking reservations by hand. People would come up to the desk. And I said, what's here? And she said, it's a nightclub. I said, what do people do there? And I said, well, they sing and they dance. I said, great, can I sing here tonight? And she said, yeah, sure, sure, kid, you can. Yeah, she was a t- tough lady. Yeah. And I, said, I took that to be a yes. So later that night, my parents were sitting in the nightclub. They looked up onto the stage because Dennis was missing. And there I was on the stage <laughs> handing my sheet music to the band leader. And he said, kid, what are you doing? I said, the lady said I, I could ch- sing here. He said, what lady? I said, the lady in charge. He said, I don't know. Okay, go ahead, sing. And he started the band and and we did it. And later that day, uh, my grandfather had one of those phony headline newspaper headings printed up, said, Dennis wows them at the Concord. Uh, and that was that was it. I, I knew music and singing. That's what I wanted to do. 
who did you see as a young person up on that stage in that screen that really got you going, oh, and it made you feel something? Oh, my gosh. Well, I have three heroes. One is uh, Jack Benny, and I love Jack Benny. <laughs> and then uh, Jerry Lewis is another. <laughs> and uh, Danny Kay, who was probably my favorite because he was so versatile and could sing yeah. and could dance and do everything. And And my father was the guy who introduced me to musicals and we always sang in the car and it was a household filled with music. And were your folks connected to the industry or to music in their own ways? No, my father (sighs) was in the furniture business. Wow. And uh, he would ask me throughout my life, you ready? You want to come into the furniture business? I said, no, I'm good. So, but thanks anyway. But they encouraged you. I think about it now and, and think about what my parents did, all the things that they had to do, make it possible for me. I'm so grateful. My mother had a book that she kept of all the appointments for the auditions and things like that. And said, what this woman went through. And as a seven-year-old, I didn't know how to say thank you for, because I didn't know what was going on. And so that led to the great white way. So for a kid like me, I can remember going to cats about that age. They kind of came down the aisles and touched me on the shoulder and I got chills. And then they started singing and I got goosebumps and, you know, everything changes. How on earth did you get onto that stage? I was one of these showbiz kids. I was auditioning for things. And this was actually my first big break being in the chorus of a Broadway show, but not just any Broadway show. It was one of Noel Coward's last musicals. And of course, I didn't appreciate the significance of Noel Coward, uh, such a legendary writer and composer. But there I was. Not only did I, I get to be in the chorus, but I managed to get my dog in the show. Wow. (laughs) There's a scene where the star, Elaine Stritch, she had a dog in the show, and the dog that they had bit her. My parents, in celebration, beaming the show, they got me a a schnauzer. Uh And we named the schnauzer the same title as the show, which was called Sail Away. And somehow, this is Dennis at an early age, I walked up to the producer and said, I have a dog. Yeah. And it was just one of those things. So the dog probably made more money than I did. <laughs> the idea that Elaine was getting bit by the dog, I feel like it could have gone either way. I'm sure she was delightful, but my understanding is one tough cookie. She was, but she was also an interesting lady to be around. She would invite the kids. There were about several of us in the chorus of the show. And she'd have us down her dressing room. She's handing these little plastic glasses with this beverage in it that was very bubbly <laughs> and we would drink it and, and, she, and we said, oh, we're having a party. And it was, it was champagne. <laughs> she was a character. I'm writing about how critical music was for me and how it made me feel as a little boy. How did it feel compared to say being in school with your schoolmates or to playing stickball in Queens or whatever other things. Like, how do you characterize what was happening with you in your body and your spirit and your soul and your mind at that time when you're creating or performing? I think my parents wanted me to experience some of the things that normal kids would do. I was on a little league team and for some reason around that time I was getting nosebleeds. So I was relegated to the sitting things out, but maybe it's some psychosomatic thing where I wasn't singing. I wasn't on stage. I wasn't doing music. So there it came. I can't remember any time where there wasn't music around me. And my parents would take me. I I got to see Carol Burnett in Once Upon a Mattress, which was her first big Broadway show. And I think it really had an effect on me. I started collecting playbills and 
anytime I could get hold of a record, vinyl records, of course, yeah, in those days, yeah, yeah. I, that's what I would play all, all day long. So interested in this intersection of show tunes and the Beatles. So do they come along at about the teenage years? Yes. My older brother, he got interested in them before I did. And he mm -hmm. was taking guitar lessons and playing guitars. And he'd play these songs, I Want to Hold Your Hand. And at the time, I didn't think much of it. When the Beatles first came out, I think I was in the sixth grade or fifth grade. You know, I was one of those guys, all the girls were going crazy over the Beatles. I said, yeah. well, I don't think they're so hot. Right. And then uh, maybe a, a year or two later, my brother took me to see A Hard Day's Night. And I said, wow, yeah. this is special. Yeah, I'm a huge Beatle fan. I have my own Beatles band now. We're yes, called you Moana do. Beatles. <laughs> it's the best gig I've ever had. What could be better than playing these great songs and trying to get it right? And people yeah. who respond to it, I mean, they're just, before you even play a note, they know they're going to hear Beatles music and they're happy. It's a different kind of power than singing your own thing, or it's a different kind of feeling. Yeah. As a writer, I love hearing my songs recorded. I love mm -hmm. singing them. But I don't know if I get the same thrill as I do playing a yeah. Beatles song. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's because yeah. it's so connected to my younger days and it takes you back. I think when I do these shows with my band, we say we're not only reliving old memories, we're creating new ones at the same mm -hmm. time. So mm -hmm. it's self-perpetuating. That makes a lot of sense if you wrote something when you were 28 versus something that was in your skin from the time you were eight. How many times have you heard I Want to Hold Your Hand? You, know, you couldn't even begin to count. Right, if I have to sing my own song, I have to really study the lyrics, but a Beatles right. song, they're, they're just ingrained. When were you first exposed to Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood? At what age? I was a late bloomer. He came on television, not the Canadian show, but the later show in my last year of high school. I knew about him. I liked what I saw, but I wasn't engrossed in it. Yeah. It didn't really happen until 2004, where I was in my kitchen, had the TV on, and his show came on, and he's mm. singing It's You I Like. I said, yeah. wow, what a cool song. I wonder who wrote this. And then find out that Fred wrote all the songs. Yeah. And then I wondered, well, has anybody besides Fred ever recorded these songs? Because this could work. And found out not really. And I said, oh, my head went off and said, I've got to do this. Went through all the things that you go through. I approached family communications and said, I've got this idea. I think I want to take Fred's songs and re-record them as you've never heard them before with a little updated pop feel to it and have well-known artists, celebrities singing them. And uh, it took a year before they came around and said yes. I think they finally said yes just to get rid of me. Right. Me too. <laughs> so you, you know, it's just- Which a, is a good vote on behalf of persistence. Exactly. Exactly. I just felt I couldn't let it go. It was just yeah. too good an idea. And I did another album of Fred's yeah. songs. The first time it was an academic adventure, like, can I really do this? Can I make this work? And I started to get an appreciation for him, but it wasn't until it all settled in and I learned more about him. The second experience is I want to do it for him as opposed mm. to, you know, can Dennis pull this off? So now I'm 
even more of a Mr. Rogers fan than I ever was. And that's why I'm starting this campaign to get Mr. Rogers into the Songwriters Hall of Fame, because I recognize not only are these great songs, I recognize how much Fred loved creating them and how yeah. much music was his passion. And I don't think a lot of people know that. I think they they just take it for granted. Oh, here he is, he's singing these songs. But they're good songs, they're great songs. I have so much respect now for him as a songwriter, as a craftsman who knew what he was doing. He does such clever things that if you take the time to listen to it, look at how he interwove that lyric and it connects with that next word. Mm. And he, his chord choices and his accompaniment, he, he really is one of the great American songwriters. And he belongs to be in that group and to be recognized as such. And it's my one-man band just trying to get this thing off the ground, but we're we're making progress. We've got 2,000 signatures so yeah. far and got a long way to go, but I feel the same way I do with these albums. It's just something I feel compelled to do. And I want to do it for Fred because I think it would make him happy. What do you think it is? Is it because it's a children's show? By 2005, you'd had a lot of experience with children's television and moreover in music across. I mean, you, you Grammys, you're scoring shows, you're writing songs for major talents in all kinds of categories of music. Talk about that songbook. What makes it special in terms of the content, the editorial, if you will, the storytelling, the, the topics versus the broader other topics in the Great American Songbook? Because you're a guy who knows. I think people, unless they've listened to a couple of my albums, they've only heard Fred singing it. And it's so easy just to immediately brush it off as, oh, it's a children's song. Mm-hmm. And because Fred delivers it and his focus was on the child, people who are listening to pop radio or things are not going to pick up on that unless they take the time, stop, look and listen. Mm-hmm. It takes away the focus on his songwriting talent and people are not really discovering it the way they could. If you put it in terms that they're used to hearing, like something that's a little bit more contemporized and with another voice other than Fred's voice, you'll right. see that it does work. And the formula for what makes a great American song is, can the song be recorded or sung in a different styles by different people? If it is that universal, then, then it is a great American song or just a great song. And Fred's songs, I think we managed to prove this, they, they can be done by different people and they can be done as reggae songs, they can be done as a swing or whatever it is. Yeah. And it works. And so he should be there. You were on tour at a fairly young-ish age with the new Christy Minstrels, correct? And this was not an insignificant musical act in the world, like millions of records, still tons of listeners on Spotify. What was that experience like? That was a real learning experience for me. I had graduated college and I was just starting my graduate school work at NYU. Mm. And I got a call from the Christie. They had seen me audition before, but at that time I was just starting college, so I couldn't do it. But this time it felt different. And I thought about it. Do I want to do this? I had never really been on the road and lived at home. And I thought, I kind of would like to try it. And you might get a kick out of this because they wanted someone to play an upright bass. I played electric bass. I had never touched an upright (laughs) bass. So they said, okay, we're going to audition you. And so I ran to my local high school. I borrowed an upright bass and I took one lesson with the local bass teacher. Oh, gosh. And the next day 
I sang into a telephone sitting on the desk, an old style telephone. This land is your land. I knew just enough to get me through that. And they said, okay, be out in Los Angeles next week. Wow. And then for the next two weeks, my fingers were were bleeding because oh, they weren't yeah. used to those big fat strings. And do all upright basses, are they all fretless or just the ones that I've seen? I mean, I feel like it's a different equation and yeah. it's vertical, not horizontal. I had to put a little tape so I could know where C was on the bass and I got through it. And and then once it happened and we were on stage and it was a great learning experience on how to perform in front of an audience. And they gave me lots of liberties to be funny and I would climb on top of the bass and play it. But working in different communities, it was a, a community tour. So we were in small towns and bigger towns, got to learn how to talk to an audience, how to relate to them. So I came out a better performer and better writer, I think, as a result of it, because I was writing songs on the bus as we mm. were traveling down the road and learning my craft then. The harmonies I hear in the minstrels and in your more contemporary work throughout the archie, I mean, there's real California, like mamas and papas, beach boys, lush, rich stuff. I've always had a love of harmony. When you have three people in a room singing something with three parts, if a part is missing, I zoom and I gravitate to that part right. and I can play, sing that part. And that's just, how do you do that? Just being around music and listening to the Beatles and different people. And for me, I was a big Carpenters fan too. And Mamas and Papas, all those things. I do tend to gravitate towards the vocal groups. You made me think how meaningful for me singing with my mother in church. And I wasn't a big church kid, but at least for a while we went and singing, I would, she taught me harmony in church. And I still walk around the house with headphones on, harmonizing new parts to either myself or some other act. And I, unlike you, sir, have no training. Uh, I mean, I did take lessons, but I was pulled when they accused me of playing by ear. And so I just play chords and, and so forth. But it's like there's something missing, right? And you fill it in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love doing that. Dennis, the list of artists that you've worked with is truly bananas, right? <laughs> it really is. You know that, right? <laughs> it's awesome and truly bananas. I'll just read a few. Faith Hill, Ray Charles, Alison Krauss, The Muppets, right? Amy Grant, Roberta Flack. I mean, Charlie Daniels, come on. Yeah, sometimes I have to pinch myself. I'm pinching myself chatting with you. Which artist or interpretation surprised or moved you the most that you can think of and why? Well, it's like, which of you children do you like most? I was very impressed with Roberta Flack. You mentioned her. So yeah. she took Fred's song and just gave it such a, a different vibe. She's so talented. Um, the only problem with that recording session, she also had a lot of great stories. So she'd uh -huh. sing, would you be my neighbor? And she, you know, that reminds me of the time I was with Quincy Jones. And she <laughs> tells the story for about 25 minutes. And then all of a sudden she said, well, I got to go. I said, wait a minute, we haven't finished the song yet. <laughs> so, uh, but she was great. I love John Sakata. His treatment of won't mm, you be mm -hmm, my neighbor mm -hmm. is pretty special. And actually, the Cowsills did a, such a great job adding their harmonies. Mickey Dolan's, you know, I was a monkey fan as yeah, well. Me too. So it's kind of an eerie feeling to be standing next to the, this man who was yeah. part of the monkeys. Oh, my gosh. I feel like I've saw all the, every episode. Yeah. Trying to be the producer and do my job and make sure we get a great recording inside. It's like 
do you realize right. what what's going <laughs> on here? And yeah, so yeah, I'm trying to gotta be cool though. How did you work with artists in terms of their song choices? Did you propose or did you say, hey, listen, which song spoke to you? I narrowed it down, you know, with, that were repertoires like. I didn't want to bombard them with you know, 200 songs or even 100 songs yeah. or even 50 songs. Yeah. I at least narrowed it down and said, here's some things that I think could work for you. And yeah, I let them choose which works for them. Nine times out of 10, it was the right choice. The only time I remember where we didn't go with a, a song that I had anticipated was with Ricky Skaggs. He had in his mind, he liked, let's think of something to do while you're waiting. And in retrospect, he, he made the good call. He, he knew his music better than I did. It really worked. And as a result of making these two albums and now doing the work around the Hall of Fame, you must have heard, I mean, I have, right? Hundreds, because we love sharing these stories of our experiences with Fred, either on camera or in the real world. Can you share a standout story, one that you can remember really moving you? And do you have any sense of what they share in common? You're making me think of a, not exactly a story with Fred, but a story with Mrs. Rogers. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Because like I told you, when I was planning this first album, we went ahead and we recorded it. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, what happens if the Fred Rogers people, they don't like it? And I got a message on my machine from Joanne Rogers. And she said, Dennis, I just listened to the album. And I'm going, oh no. And she <laughs> said, I loved it. And Fred would have loved it. Yeah. And to me, that's, that was better than any Grammy or anything else I could have gotten. Yeah. And we became friends and that moved me more than anything. You know, I asked her first if I could do the movie about two years after Fred passed. So right about the time you were releasing the, your first album. And she said, yes, I'm sure he'd be thrilled in an email. Up until her passing, we corresponded a bit. And, and I remember sending her, I got this truly, Dennis, it wasn't a big deal award, but it was to us because it was from American Public Television show of the year kind of thing. And I sent it to her with my daughters and the daughters were like four and six at the time. And I remember reading her letter and tears were streaming down my face because mm. there was something way more it's like John, Fred's youngest, saying at the premiere, I think my dad would be really proud of you. And you're like, well, I'm good then. But also, yeah. and, and to bring it back to you and to us in this kind of work is, to me, what you're doing is keeping a legacy going. You're a helper in the amplification and ongoing enjoyment and celebration of a very strong body of work. And this is why, as I said, you're preaching to the converted, but lobbying for the Songwriter Hall of Fame. Now, what is, Dennis, the actual protocol in terms of how we help make this happen? This campaign is really to raise awareness to the people who actually vote, who are members of the Songwriter Hall of Fame. We can't make that decision, but we can put a little fire under them to say, mm -hmm. hey, don't forget Fred Rogers. It's really easy. If people go to the website, thank you, Mr. Rogers, on that front page, if you scroll down, you'll see Let's induct Fred into the Songwriter Hall of Fame. And that'll take you to a change.org petition and you just sign your name and we're on our way. And while you're at Thank You, Mr. Rogers, please, by all means, I hope listeners will listen to these songs we've been talking about, these new arrangements of Fred's songs. If you haven't heard it, I really think you'll be surprised and you'll be delighted by what you're hearing. 
and you'll hear Fred's music in a whole new light. You can see videos, Mickey Dolan singing the song, yeah. and all, all sorts of things. So it's, it's a fun place to visit if you're a Fred fan. And then you can sign the petition to get Fred into the Songwriters Hall of Fame. And I want to hearken back to what you were saying when you were talking about your movie. It made me think just now, you and I were really comrades in trying to propel and elongate Fred's legacy. You were doing it on the visual side and the movie side. And I was on the other side working on the musical side. Yeah. So we really are soldiers in this effort. That's why I'm glad we finally get to talk. You know, it's it's really neat. It's really a neat discovery. And then Amy Hollingsworth, my friend who wrote The Simple Faith of Mr. Rogers, often talks about how, you know, just it feels like people are just put together in the world. And, and it's just hard not to imagine Fred up there kind of just giggling or something, being like, oh, great. <laughs> I uh, found a quote of his that I wanted to try on you. The child is in me still and sometimes not so still. I'm interested, Dennis, because... I mean, your website, my experience with you, the work that you do, the Grammys that you've, uh, that you've won are around childhood. I think it, it just spews out of me. I'm thinking to a, a quote Jerry Lewis said, um, he talked about the success of his characters because there's a little child, a little impish character who wants to get out. And that's what flowed. And maybe because I did watch a lot of him I just let it come out of me, but I, I don't know. I, it, it's interesting. I've never told anybody this, uh, which means you're a great interviewer. But um, when I became a father, I said, I don't know. I, I don't feel like I'm, I still feel like I'm a kid. Yeah. How can I be a father and a kid at the same time? <laughs> so my, my son has gotten used to it. It's just a part of me that never does want to grow up. And, um, I know I would much rather be doing music and instead of uh, balancing the books. Yeah. Growing up is hard, even when you're an adult. I feel more grown up now, but I feel also more connected to understanding how the 10 year old and me who really connected with Fred's, well, Fred made everybody safe, right? Any of the folks, you know, from Tom on to Vanessa Williams, spend any time with him yourself. You know, that was a, a real experience you had around Fred was real, real safety, which isn't really our experience in the world. Right. And as I watch my little girls and I'm interested in, in your experience with your son, I find myself trying to just be present enough to cultivate a little bit extra space around both of us to have that safety, to just go ahead and be an imaginative and loose in the way that his music felt right. And the show felt, even though it was deeply studied and highly intentioned. Did your work around Fred's music end up informing how you approached fatherhood? Was the timing such that you were able to, oh. I mean, you're still a father, you know? Were there lessons you were able to call on? Were there songs you were able to sing? Were there ideas you were able to employ as a father? I think Fred's lessons and ideas did permeate me. They uh, fell into my subconscious. Yeah. And I think they did manifest themselves in ways that made me take more time to listen to my son and to let him be who he was and to love him as he was and not trying to make him be anything else other than that. Yeah. If you spend enough time around Fred and his, his music, it's, he had such a, a way about him, you, you can't help but be affected by it. It did make me a better parent. But I'm thinking too of um, 
I have to digress a little bit because when I was doing this most recent album, we started out, we didn't have a budget, we didn't have anything. So I thought, well, I want to do something for Fred. Let's interview people, people who are just everyday fans, just workaday people who, who love Fred. And I managed to get their names because we created a website and started the process. And my thought was, well, it'll be an album of interviews and music because right mm -hmm. now we have no guest stars on it. And it wasn't until Rita Wilson got on board and then more people came on board. All of a sudden it was, well, now we have no room for interviews. So more recently, I took this treasure trove of interviews that I had and put together a, an audiobook. I'm hearing these people's experiences, their individual stories of writing a letter to Fred and having this man who's on television write back. Um, mm -hmm. First in, in you know handwritten and then later on in emails. Each of these stories were so compelling. It really affected me. I, I, the power that he generated and the effect he had on people was just so amazing, so moving. I think uh, even more seriously about Fred Rogers, about the good that he did in the world, the, the good work that he wanted to see succeed. And all these people would agree on the name of this uh, audiobook is called Mr. Rogers Now More Than Ever, because every time I would speak to somebody, that came up all the time. We need That's Mr. Right. Rogers more now than ever. I heard it in your movie. So it seemed like an appropriate title. You're just conjuring up all these thoughts about my Mr. Rogers experience. I'd love to hear your point of view and your synthesis. Why now more than ever? And what specifically about Mr. Rogers now more than ever? What, what would you say your takeaway is? We live in troubled times. And Mr. Rogers, as you said earlier, was a safe place for people. And he made it safe and he also filled it with ideas and thoughts to help us feel better about ourselves and even about the world that surrounds us. And people are just, I think they're a little desperate for good advice that doesn't come from our governments or teachers or people in a different kind of line of work. Mm -hmm. We want to hear it from someone who we trust. And I think that's one thing Fred did. He he was that person. You, mm -hmm. When he talked to you, people say, I thought he was talking directly to me. Mm -hmm. And I think he was, in a sense. And he had great things to tell us that we could use into our own lives. And I think that's why people feel we miss him, especially since his show is off the air now. And we need Mr. Roger. Where is he? And he's he's there. You just have to read those books, see your movie, listen to his music, and you, you can bring him back. You don't need much. You don't need to carry around anything to carry a song with you, right? It's in your head and your heart. <laughs> no, no iPod necessary, no movie screen necessary, you know? It was your movie, I think. Somebody mentioned you can never go down the drain. Right. And uh, I have a friend who was trying to get some of these songs uh, onto radio, and she's, well, I can't use that one. I said, why not? She said, well, it's, it's a children's song. I said, no, it's not. Yeah. You, can, you can never go down the drain means it's your life. Your life can right. never go down the drain either. You're still 
viable. You can still make it better. And I thought, how incredibly clever that Fred was writing that on two different levels. Yeah. Sure, he makes a little reference to the, the tub and to the telescope. But overall, he, he was doing something that a lot of writers can't do. That's super sophisticated. In our movie, our assumption was always, yes, the show was for kids, but that didn't mean that there weren't applicable lessons for us all. And you're saying the same thing, right? Yes, that song was targeted at the kid who was afraid of going down the drain. But I love that you're like, but wait a second, the metaphor is a thousand percent applicable to us having agency in our own lives, really. Right. And some of the people I talked to, some were college kids and they said, oh, we love Mr. Rogers. And some who were college kids and said, yes, we would listen to him after a hard day of classes. And there were some touching stories. This woman who uh, she was abused as a child and she felt unloved and when she went to Fred's show, she felt loved and mm. it made her, it saved her life. I don't think she's alone. And I have a hunch, Dennis, that music has saved our lives. If not just Fred's, then music in general. Fred had just asked me to come to his house to play guitar for him. You know, I sang him a song. It was a sad song, right? So I'm grateful to you for spending time with me and for connecting around two things that are just the most important in my life. One of which first and foremost is music. And the second is Fred. Wow. Well, it's been quite a journey. You made my day. Your film is just a treasure. And oh, thanks. I just appreciate the fact that now we're connected. Yeah. Now we're neighbors and friends. <laughs> uh -huh, there you go. So let's make the most of this Friends and Neighbors is an essential industries production in association with Wagner Brothers. Learn more at friendsandneighborshow.com. And please help your friends and neighbors discover our show by sharing, liking, commenting, and rating. Really, it makes a difference. Mr. Rogers and Me is available on Apple TV, Amazon Prime, and PBS DVD. Until next time, it's a good feeling to know we're lifelong friends. Friends.